0: You're listening to KUAF 91.3 FM in Fayetteville. This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, June 5th. I'm Daniel Carruth, sitting in today for Kyle Kellums. Coming up, we dig into the latest data from the Census Bureau on record growth in Arkansas, and we go to the Oaklawn Racetrack with Randy Dixon in today's Pryor Center Archive. But first, a new cryptocurrency mine in rural Faulkner County and another proposed for construction in Boone County in Harrison are among nearly a dozen such facilities in Arkansas. These decentralized data centers generate valuable virtual currency, including Bitcoin. But as Jacqueline Froelich reports, crypto mining can also generate intense noise pollution, tons of carbon emissions, and concerns about foreign investors.
1: A company called Green Digital LLC based in Brooklyn, New York, applied for a conditional use permit in early April from the city of Harrison to construct a cryptocurrency mining facility on a five-acre parcel zoned heavy industrial located along Old Belafonte Road. The property was purchased late last year by real estate developer Greenland Holding Group CEO Hu Gong for $600,000. More than 200 upset residents turned out for a second meeting of the Harrison Planning Commission held May 23rd inside a Northwest Arkansas College auditorium, claiming the crypto mining facility will harm the surrounding community, including a nearby children's learning center. Seated in the front row, Jane Evermont held a protest placard.
2: No Bitcoin mining here. Planning and zoning vote no. They've not been up front with any of their answers. This company has been deceptive from the get-go.
1: The auditorium grew quiet as Green Digital's attorney, Ryan Stacks, made a final pitch to the commission.
3: You know, further, we we have actually... Um, offered up answers to any questions the city has had. I believe at this point we've answered everything they've asked um, in order to try to, to, to further clarify what it is uh, that's being proposed.
1: A previous planning meeting in April was also packed with concerned citizens where Brian Warner, a local construction contractor for Green Digital, chalked off opposition to misinformation and resistance to new technology. At this meeting, rather than voting, here some planning commissioners deferred the matter to city council. This is Chairman Pat Brown.
4: So there's so much opposition, it's become a political issue. So it just makes
5: sense to let it go to where it needs to be, and that's to the city council. Those are the elected officials.
1: After the meeting, we asked Green Digital attorney Ryan Stacks for an interview about the proposed facility, costs of construction, jobs, tax revenue, environmental controls, and foreign investors. At first, he agreed, but after conferring with colleagues, declined. Harrison resident Liz Torgeson has been investigating Green Digital as well as the burgeoning cryptocurrency mining industry in Arkansas.
2: I myself am familiar. I work in technology before I retired. I worked in server rooms. I've worked at data centers. I understand the the noise levels and the uh, safety requirements um but the big the 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 main things is basically the draw on our electrical grid and the noise and it does not pro it does not provide any type of income to this town in the way of jobs or um any type of revenue
1: to educate the public, Torgersons created an open Facebook group, MetaHash Global slash Green Digital, archiving documents and video. Outside the meeting, we met with Tom Hartford, founder of the new Arkansas Blockchain Council and a partner in a new Malvern-based crypto mining company under construction called Cryptic Farms.
6: One of the concerns that the council has, um, which represents not just uh, blockchain and the crypto mining industry in the state, but also serves to advocate for townships and councils to help them vet and answer the right questions about who is coming in to do crypto mining and what their origin is.
1: Hartford says the Arkansas Blockchain Council is closely monitoring the green digital complex development.
6: It's a little bit like whack-a-mole pinning down who they are, where they are, what their associations are, and I think the citizens of Harrison have done some excellent amateur sleuthing to really trace that. Um, you know, uh, from the industry council side of things, this is something we take very seriously and want to investigate. Because while we're not a regulatory body, we certainly want anyone who is working in the industry in this state to represent the values of transparency and if they are foreign entities um, ones that are allied with the views and the goals of the united states
1: residents living in rural faulkner county had no idea a crypto mine even existed until they heard it This new cryptocurrency data center owned and operated by a green digital subsidiary in the unincorporated community of Bono is comprised of 21 large cargo shipping containers on a flat field, apparently constructed with no sound baffling. A Faulkner County resident who doesn't want to be identified for this report recorded the blaring sound standing on private property 120 feet away from the facility. The people in Bono was totally caught off guard and naive to what's going on. And so that morning they woke up with uh, construction crew and Chinese National in this unincorporated small town that was my uh, childhood hometown. And the word just went like uh, spread quickly that uh, something unusual going on. The sound is caused by high-velocity fans required to cool banks of computer servers 24-7. Neighbors are reporting emotional harm due to the incessant noise, as well as disturbance to both livestock and wildlife. Residents have asked county officials to intervene. Because people are trying to meet with them, and they did have a meeting, and people left very disgusted and upset. Back at the May 23rd Harrison Planning Commission meeting, Green Digital's attorney, Ryan Stax asked the commission to either approve the permit or table the request until next month, allowing the company to provide more data. Instead, the commission deferred the matter to city council a few days later, with around 100 attending. At that meeting, Stax, on behalf of Green Digital, in writing, withdrew the request for a conditional use permit, pending further environmental study. On May 30th, Harrison City Council met once more, this time passing an ordinance to impose a year-long moratorium on crypto mining and data centers. Crypto mining is a relatively new industry in the U.S. China initially owned over two-thirds of the world's Bitcoin mining operations, but several years ago, that government declared all cryptocurrency transactions illegal spurring Chinese investors to transact cryptocurrencies and mining offshore, including staking claims in Arkansas. Mary Goforth is a distinguished professor of law at the University of Arkansas, which operates the Blockchain Center of Excellence. She researches regulations regarding crypto transactions and assets regulations.
2: The reason that we call it cryptocurrency is because it was originally conceived as a substitute for government-backed currency. And it is protected because it's a digital asset. It's protected online through cryptography. Crypto is at its heart, nothing more than a very long string of numbers and letters, alphanumeric sequence, that is stored on a bunch of different computers in the form of a series of transactions documented on a ledger that we call the blockchain. And we call it the blockchain because the ledger consists of blocks of data, transactions, the issuance and transfer of that huge long alphanumeric sequence linked together in a chain.
1: Goforth says the value of cryptocurrencies, unlike U.S. currency, is unstable.
2: Crypto has the value that people say it has. When you buy, for example, a Bitcoin, you are buying the right to say, based on this huge long Bitcoin blockchain, which is this ledger of transactions, I now have ownership of this many coins and here's my long alphanumeric sequence to prove that I have ownership. So what do I have? I have an alphanumeric sequence. I don't have anything else. It has value only because other people are willing to put in things that also have value, cash, other forms of crypto. They are willing to pay that much for it because there's nothing underlying it. It has the value that people give it, and that is necessarily going to be very subjective, and it has proven to be extremely volatile.
1: Circulation of and demand for cryptocurrency, despite the risks, continues to grow. And more states, including Montana and Arkansas, are aggressively courting cryptocurrency mining facilities, offering incentives. During the 2023 legislative session, Arkansas lawmakers approved two bills, Act 851 and 819, the second bill providing sales and use tax exemptions.
2: And Act 819, which you referenced, is one of Arkansas's attempts to get those major mining operations. And if you look at 819, we're not talking about small deals. The Act 819 only applies. Let me see what was the investment? If you had to invest 500 million dollars within five years, And you had to pay an aggregate annualized compensation of a million dollars to Arkansas employees. So we're not talking about, you know, a little small home operations for that bill. That's to get a whole bunch of money, big, bigger operations coming into the state.
1: The second measure, Act 851, the Arkansas Data Centers Act, lays out regulations for cryptocurrency mining in the state, as well as compliance. The law also mandates that local governments cannot discriminate against such businesses, treating them as conventional data centers. We caught up with State Senator Brian King, District 28, Green Forest, at the May 23rd Harrison Planning Commission meeting. He says Act 851 was approved by lawmakers with little insight.
3: And the last few days down there was nothing short of a banana republic. in in getting bills out, and the bill was passed out, amended at 11 o'clock out of Senate committee, was on the Senate floor, was not on the agenda at 1 o'clock when we went in. Uh, It was a 10 hour and 10 and a half hour session that day with constant bills, and the sponsor popped up and passed it. And I think there's a lot of legislators that's having regret about this.
1: King plans to file a bill to repeal Act 851 to stem widespread underregulated startup of crypto mines across the state.
3: These facilities take a huge amount of energy and you know they really don't contribute that many jobs. So I think that we have to weigh things today and know the whole impact and make decisions. And these companies are here today because Arkansas typically has cheap energy. And, uh, you know, we always want to be a business friendly state, but sometimes you have to make informed decisions and that's what repealing it would do.
1: King is also concerned that the Harrison crypto mine could cause electrical blackouts. Documents show, if built, the facility would be the single largest power consumer within city limits. According to a news release issued early last year, the Northwest Arkansas Council publicly offered a million dollars in Bitcoin provided by Walmart, Ayers, Tom, and Stuart Walton to entice top cryptocurrency entrepreneurs to the region. The council is actively reviewing thousands of applicants. And the Arkansas Blockchain Council states that Arkansas is uniquely positioned to become a key leader in the evolving crypto and blockchain sectors both nationally and globally. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Frolik.
0: You're listening to Ozarks at Large on KUAF Public Radio.
4: Historic Cane Hill presents Swirl, a family-friendly event in conjunction with the Nylok and Beyond exhibition. This event, June 17th, 1230 to 430 p.m., will feature the Community Creative Center's Wheelmobile with a make-your-own pottery station, pottery demonstrations and sales, and a gallery talk. More information at
0: historiccanehillar.org events. This is Ozarks at Large. Construction of the new Institute for Integrative and Innovative Research at the University of Arkansas is shutting down an intersection for the first half of the summer. Building crews will close the Duncan Avenue and William Street intersection from Monday, June 5th to July 15th, according to a press release from the university. Commuters may then use one-lane traffic until both lanes reopen around August 5th. The nearby Harmon Avenue parking garage will remain open. The 144,000 square foot research facility is expected to open in the fall of 2024. And Fayetteville City Council member Sonia Harvey is resigning from her position as Ward 1 representative in South Fayetteville. Harvey says she could not find an affordable home in her ward.
7: Um, so here we are and thankfully we found something in the city and that's you know, we wanted to stay in Fayetteville,
2: but um, it has been uh, quite a lot.
0: Although Northwest Arkansas housing prices have begun to stabilize since the second half of 2022, according to the R.V.S. Skyline report, for years home costs have soared. Harvey says housing is one of the main topics for the city council.
7: It's definitely a challenge. We're, we're all the council is really aware, and we're just trying to figure out where to even begin, you know, but we know it's a lot of different ways to go at it.
0: Fayetteville City Council must elect a new member or call for a special election to replace Harvey. She will continue to serve on the City Council until June 30th. An education law championed by Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders will remain on hold while courts rule over procedural matters. On Friday, Arkansas Supreme Court justices ruled 4-3 to uphold a Pulaski County Circuit Judge's order to temporarily half the law until a hearing can take place on June 20th. The Arkansas LEARNS Act is an omnibus education law passed by the legislature earlier this year. The lawsuit argues lawmakers did not follow proper procedure when voting on the bill. Governor Sanders called the lawsuit absurd on Twitter. And a young couple was elected by the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust to participate in FarmLink, a program that matches farm seekers with landholders. Last April, Daniel and Chloe Evans broke ground planting a five-acre plot on the historic Woolsey Farmstead in West Fayetteville. Named Honest Dirt Market Garden, the land is owned by the city and managed by Northwest Arkansas Land Trust. We already have planted onions and potatoes, We have beets and carrots, kale, cabbage. you have got some bok choy, spinach, and summer squash and cucumbers, tomatoes, peppers, eggplant. The Evans are under a three-year renewable lease agreement with the Land Trust and are pursuing naturally grown certification. Daniel Evans, a Rogers native and Harding University graduate, is a seasoned sustainable market gardener. I would say um, with... Land access being so difficult for young farmers, the land trust wanting somebody to farm here in the city on land that was historically used to grow food, it's, it's an honor to have it continue that legacy of growing food here and growing it for the people of Fayetteville. His wife, Chloe Evans, is a native of Abilene, Texas, and is currently employed at Cobblestone Farms in Fayetteville.
1: It was really exciting, but it also felt like a big responsibility, um, and I, I was like excited for that kind of motivation, having like um, this property, and also for it to be so like public.
0: Honest Dirt Market Garden is located on Broyles Road, across from the historic Woolsey Farmhouse, currently under renovation, and adjacent to Woolsey Wet Prairie Preserve. They sell produce every Tuesday and Saturday at the Fayetteville Farmer's Market.
4: The third annual Her Set, Her Sound Festival is back June 9th and 10th at West and Watson and Prairie Street Live in Fayetteville. Her Set, Her Sound takes up space to celebrate identity and empower women and non-binary DJs in our region. Guests can enjoy food trucks, vendors, and entrepreneurs, plus groovy vibes and activations to amplify her on and off the stage. Tickets and sponsorship information available at hersethersound.com.
0: You're listening to Ozarks at Large. Northwest Arkansas continues to hold the state's fastest growing counties, and smaller regional cities such as Haifel and Tawny Town continue to grow. Ozarks at-large's Anna Pope spoke with Allison Wright, head of the data center division for the Arkansas Economic Development Institute, about the population data trends and housing units added.
8: So I'm here talking to you about new census data showing Conway as Arkansas's fastest growing city in 2022, Northwest Arkansas as the fastest growing metro, and Tawnytown as the fastest growing city with less than 50,000 people, but also in contrast, there were some other areas that population fell, such as Hot Springs, West Memphis, and Pine Bluff. Does the data reveal anything new to you?
7: Well, it's pretty much following trends that we've seen um, historically in the last decade, but uh, it is showing, at least in some of the smaller towns, that we are seeing them pick up a lot more pace than some of the larger towns that we had been seeing gain. So as you mentioned, like the, some of Tawny Town, some of the other ones in northwest Arkansas that have gained a higher percentage, that's partially due to the fact that they had a lower population to begin with. But still, they're um, they're topping the list, a lot of the smaller ones um, at a much larger percentage. So they're definitely growing very quickly up there.
8: Well, and so housing has been on people's minds, and how much has it changed in the state according to the data?
7: Our housing units have changed just over the last year. We've increased by 1.1%, and that makes us the 20th in ranking of states in the U.S. as far as housing unit increase.
8: Gotcha. And so how do these numbers compare with past data or kind of going back to that same question that I had about the population's growth? is it Does it reveal anything new and trends? Right. Not really. The things that it's showing is basically
7: the same. You know, the housing units were continuing to grow in the most populated areas and the rule is declining. You know, they're not either not producing as many housing units increasing or some of them are actually declining. And, you know, there's ones that are being torn down and things like that. So it's this year of data is not really that much different than what we have seen in the past few years.
8: So you kind of already mentioned that, you know, Benton County ranked about 65th fastest in housing unit growth in the United States. Is there any other place in the state with a similar increase in housing like Benton County?
7: Yes. So... They only released the top 100 in that file, and Benton County is the only one that made it from Arkansas at all. So we're definitely, they're growing the fastest as far as how many houses are being built.
8: Right. And it's probably trivial, but kind of like you mentioned earlier, this is all connected to where the areas are experiencing the most population growth, right? Correct. Okay. And data showing changes in population or reflecting northwest Arkansas's growth is something people see frequently. (laughs) Um, So what should people keep in mind when reading or listening to reports on census data like this? Yes, and that's why I pointed out earlier. So when you're
7: looking at, depending on how you're looking at it, if you look at it as a percentage growth, if something starts out small, whether it's housing units or population, and you see a big like 15% increase, it's relative to the population that it started at or the housing unit number that it started at. So yes, that is a big increase, but when you're talking about an actual numeric change, it's not all that many people. It's a big change for that city, but it's not overall. So when you talk about Tawny Town's 16.7% increase, that's only 934 people. But when you talk about something else like Conway, it's a 2.5% increase. You're talking about you know, 1,600 people. So that's a big, just a caveat you want to make sure that you think about when you're listening to people say, oh, we increased by this much percent, or we're the fastest growing in the state. Um. Sometimes, you know, think about it, whether it's the actual number of people or is it the percentage of people or housing units, whichever you're looking at.
8: Surely. Well, and so we're almost towards the end. And in your position there at the Institute, what is the main takeaway from you when you're looking at the trends and looking at all these data sets? Uh, what is the main takeaway for you?
7: So mainly what we're looking at, because we help do some community development around the state, is, you know, we want to look at which communities are losing population, where are they located? And then try to dig in later to maybe what's the reason and how can we address that? But then also when you look at the ones that are gaining, you're going to have to start addressing some issues such as housing, because while they are building houses, can you keep up with the pace of people coming in? That kind of stuff. So those are the main things we're looking at, you know, where are the big differences happening and can we dig in later or talk to people more locally and see what is going on? to make those things happen and how can we make sure if it's growing we're able to sustain that growth or to actually keep the people there you know that the infrastructure can be in place.
0: That was Allison Wright head of the data center division for the Arkansas Economic Development Institute. She spoke with Anna Pope KUAF's growth impact reporter who recorded the interview from the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One at the Carver Center last week.
4: Washington Regional's Her Health Clinic is committed to empowering all women by giving them the care and resources they need to take control of their own health. Gynecology services, prenatal care, childbirth, infertility treatments, and more available at Her Health Clinic, located in Washington Regional's Women and Infants Center in Fayetteville. Wregional.com slash Her Health to learn more.
9: In the Anthony and Susan Hoy News studio with me on this Monday is Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Welcome back, Randy.
10: Thank you, Kyle.
9: That opening cut, there's something called the milepost effect that I think roughly means if you smell something or hear something, it instantly takes you somewhere. Yes. Now, I don't go to Oaklawn more than once a year, and I don't go every year, but that instantly put me Oh,
10: you know it.
9: I know the feeling when I first walk in those it gates.
10: Smells. Yes. It's, and I, it's great. And it's, I don't
9: put it, down more than a two dollar bet almost ever.
10: Well, when I go, I'm not going to gamble. Right. I'm going for an event to right. have a great time. Right.
9: So we're talking about Oaklawn today.
10: And they're off. And they're off, yes. Oaklawn has been around for a while. Since nineteen oh five. Though not continuously operating. Right. There were some times yeah. that uh, you know during Prohibition wars, things like that, that it would close temporarily. But it's been a mainstay in Hot Springs, and when it first opened, it wasn't the only one. Mm. There were several others around the state and even a couple in the Hot Springs area. But the Sella brothers, uh, Charles and Lewis, opened it, and the first thing they did, get this, is they hired a guy named Zachary Taylor Davis who was a well-known architect in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And he came and designed that grandstand that you still see glassed in and heated, which had never been done before in the country. So it was a big deal. And to get an idea of how big this architect was, 10 years later, he designed Wrigley Field. Oh, my. Same guy. Huh. How
9: about that? I did not know that.
10: Yeah. So— you know, the, the Sella family still owns the track. So it's been in the family for generations. Right. For a long time, the, the president known was Charles Sella, um, his son, Louis, now is president. Um, but Charles in the – I think he took over in 68. Well, I found an interview with him uh, in the KTV archives. This dates back to 1974. He was interviewed by then KTV sports director Bud Campbell, mm-hmm. and he's talking about improvements and expansions.
5: This will increase
3: the capacity here by what?
0: Well, if you recall, last Derby Day, we set an attendance record of uh, 28,000. Uh, the capacity will be increased by a third. So we feel that we can handle adequately uh, 35,000 people.
10: So that was 49 years ago. Well, and he you know, was talking about this record right. attendance of 28,000, and they're hoping to get 35,000. Well, just to kind of put it in perspective, they set an attendance record in 1986 of more than 71,000. Wow. So it's... More than doubled. Right. Oh, yes. uh, Just since the 70s. First, let's talk about the track announcers, and they're off. Yes. There have been a a couple of really big ones over the years. The first one, who I don't remember, but was probably the most famous, was uh, a man by the name of Chick Anderson. I've heard the name. Yeah, you've always heard the name. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was not only voice at Oak Lawn, but he was also at Churchill Downs, Santa Anita, Arlington Park, and he was also on CBS Sports. So he was a well-known person in the 60s and early 70s. But, um, well, let's hear him make a stretch call here.
5: They're coming for the head of the stretch.
10: Boldo is the leader and master court is in a drive-tammy jet between horses. They're in the stretch. That is Tammy Jet taking over the lead with Master Cord on the outside in a drive. Those two are coming together. Master Cord taking over the lead as they move through the stretch. Still Tammy Jet holding in second, driving into third is Bulldore Analyst coming for the wire. It's Master Cord. At the finish, it's going to be Master Cord the winner by three and a half. Tammy Jet second. What's great about Chick Anderson's voice? It's it's very kind of low key. Mm-hmm. And monotone, mm-hmm. which was, I mean, that was him excited, right? During the yes. stretch run, right? Now the guy I know, yeah, that, that most of our keys know oh, because he was there forever for more than thirty years. Right. Uh, Terry Wallace, and he was up, he was he was up excited. Well, here's a call that he made in 1984. One thing about Terry Wallace, he could work. He never missed. A race, he had a record of 20,191 consecutive races he called.
9: Because you think about it, you're, you're calling 9, 10, 11 races every day.
10: Right, for 37 years.
9: And how you keep all those horses straight, you've only got 45 minutes or 50 minutes in between races to get yourself familiar with the horses and their silks.
10: Right, it's quite a job. Yeah, it is. Here's the great voice of Terry Wallace at the stretch.
4: Althea opens her lead to four lengths. On the outside, it is Gate Dancer moving to second. that Alarm is third, leaves them double Is fourth. But the Philly, Althea, leads it by five lengths. Gate Dancer is second at the threshold third. With a furlong line to go, it's Althea stepping away from this field of Colts in the Arkansas Derby. Althea's going to win it. Althea wins the Arkansas Derby by five lengths. That was
10: 1984 with Terry Wallace. In 84... Just the 80s in general, but especially 1984 was a big year for Oaklawn. Sports reporter from KTV Bob Harris, did a report sort of previewing the season. To accommodate the always large crowds at Oaklawn, track officials thought it would be best to enlarge the seating capacity. This
9: season's newly completed grandstand section will account for a 10% increase in the number of enclosed arena seats. Another change at the track will be the wagering system. It's all
11: computerized designed to cut down on long lines and quickly compute winnings. Essentially, every machine within the plant can sell tickets of any denomination from $2 to $250, and then turn around and cash any of those tickets. Betters will go through three simple steps at the window.
9: First, state the amount of wager. Second, state the type of wager to win, place, or
11: show. And thirdly, state the number of the horse. There will be a communication problem for both the tellers and the customers. Uh, I feel that better than 50% have never seen this type of system uh, since we have such a great turnover of public coming to the racetrack. And it will be new to them. We will have brochures, uh, literature within the program to explain how to bet. The major
9: change at Oaklawn this year, the change that's drawing most of the attention, is the purse for the Arkansas Derby. It's been raised from 250 dollars to $500,000. With excellent track conditions and a fine line of thoroughbreds coming in, many experts are predicting records to be set. That, they feel, will make the racing festival of the South worth its while. From Oakland, this is Bob Harris for New Scene 7 Sports. Obviously, by the mid-'80s, it is a mainstay of the hot springs economy and the Arkansas culture. Sure, but then competition creeps
10: in. Uh, all the adjoining states... And Blue Ribbon Downs in Salisaw opens up. Louisiana Downs in right. Baton Rouge. Um, but then you get gambling. Uh, I'll let a guy who would know tell the story. This is uh, General Manager Eric Jackson. The
11: 1980s were, were great, and we thought they would never end. And then a whole bunch of states got racing, and we nearly went out of business. So we came up with something that nobody knew what it was at the time called simulcasting. But Uh we started that here, and now it's the biggest product in American racing. And that worked until Mississippi got casinos and then Louisiana, Missouri, and Oklahoma. And suddenly we were surrounded by more casinos in adjacent states than any state in the country. And we had to come up with something. We came up with Instant Racing and formed a subsidiary. Put that on the floor in 2000, and it worked. Uh, We were able to take the revenues from that and... uh, put them into purses, and the racing got better, and suddenly it became what I call a a virtuous upward cycle where racing and gaming worked together uh, for the betterment of the sport.
9: Horse racing is not as popular now as it was 75 years ago,
10: so you had to come up with ways to engage people differently. Right, and boy, have they. Yeah, they have. Um, You know, that was the year 2000. The track officials went to the state legislature, wanted to talk to them about, you know, taking another step towards gambling at the park because gambling was still um, illegal. Right. But this I've always thought was brilliant. And I I credit Eric Jackson with doing this because it was under his, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was under his management. But they came up with a thing called skill-based gaming.
9: Not gambling.
10: No, no, because you had to uh, have some sort of skill. You Mm -hmm. were picking races, Mm -hmm. you were picking horses, but it was electronic. It was like a slot machine, but really it was a veiled form of gambling. Here's, Here's Eric Jackson again. Suddenly we could expand our menu beyond just instant racing. So it was really kind of gambling, wasn't it?
11: Oh, it was. No, it was it was real gambling. I mean, it was video poker and things like that. It was the baby steps of gaming. Uh, we started out with instant racing, and then we got electronic games of skill. Then the state got a state lottery, and then uh-huh. ultimately we were allowed to have a full casino.
10: Now, we're just talking now about announcers and management mm-hmm. and, um, you know, we aren't even talking about jockeys and trainers and owners right now. I think we could do an entire oh, sure we could. program on that if you want to. yeah We can do that in a few weeks. yeah But now let's talk about the handicappers and sports writers. You know, I remember tip sheets. You know, you're walking across the street oh, yeah. to go in, and there's always people standing on the corner. And I remember, like, Stable Boy and uh, Silent Sam – a disc jockey in Little Rock, Ray Lincoln, who used to come on the radio every morning and um, he had a character he would do <laughs> that um, he had a tip sheet. Mm-hmm. Even Gary Weir, who was Bozo the Clown, right. when he retired from the big top, he started handicapping races. He was really good. The sports writers had daily columns during the season, and they would also make picks. So you had all this information that that you could, you know, use for your wagers. Right. But one guy who's now with NBC Sports is Randy Moss, who I've known for years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we never met in person that many times. And the reason is he used to be on Live at Five every Day during racing season at 5 o'clock, we would go live to Oakland and he'd be up in the press box and he would have his picks and analyze the day of racing. And I was the producer, so I would always talk in his ear. He's now with NBC Sports and uh, he grew up in Arkansas in Hot Springs specifically. He's been going to the track since, well, actually, he was too young to go to the track. He mm-hmm. would go. But I talked to him the other day, and this is what he had to say about his early history with Oakland.
5: Snuck into Oakland in various different methods uh, when I was a kid, when the legal age was 16 years old, and I was much younger than that. And, uh, you know, eventually uh, that sort of morphed into a job with the Arkansas Gazette under Orville Henry and then the Arkansas Democrat. And so Oakland Park has been a... Uh, Very important part of my life.
10: He started handicapping races, I mean, for real. Professionally. When he was in junior high. Wow. Now, he didn't make much. Um, He started working for a man named Don Grisham, who was with the Sporting News. And he also had... And the Sporting News, in case you've forgotten, was this weekly newsprint publication. Yes. Yes. um, National. but, But he also had a column in the Arkansas Gazette. And so he hired this ninth grader, Randy Moss, to type up all of his entries and picks and then take it to give it to the newspaper, and he paid him $20 a week to do that.
5: Mm-hmm. Good money.
10: Let's listen to Randy Moss about
5: what he did. Don wasn't the greatest handicapper in the world, and I would come across races in which I was absolutely convinced in my ninth grade wisdom that he was wrong, and so... I dropped off the entries one day and uh, told them that uh, I think you made a mistake here so I, I changed your pick in this particular race. I think that this horse is going to win. The horse won. And that emboldened me. he okay me. with that? Well, when the horse won, he was okay with that. I, I, think, he, I think he found it humorous to begin with. Uh, but when the horse won, it sort of emboldened me a little bit and I started doing it more and more often and I had a lucky and impressive strike rate at the end of that ninth grade meeting when we, when we Oakland started again, and I was in the 10th grade, Don told me, let's flip this. Why don't you do all the picking? And if I want to change something, since my name is on the column, then I have, uh, then I have the right.
10: But after a few years, he made a name for himself. And, you know, like I said, he did the live at five reports and he started doing those he was 19 or 20. Wow. So he was a great handicapper and, of course, moved on and moved up, and now he's with NBC Sports. I guess if we're telling just little stories about Oakland, another good story is the story of Smarty Jones. Remember that name? Oh, my goodness. There were Smarty parties. People who were big fans of this
9: horse would gather and have a Smarty party.
10: I still have some of the Smarty Jones trading cards. Mm that they were that they were passing out and that was in 2004. He was all the talk. Oaklawn had offered in celebration of their centennial year and I think they started it the year before, but they would give they offered a 5 million dollar bonus to any horse that could win the Rebel Stakes and the Kentucky right. Derby or the Rebel Stakes and the Arkansas Derby at Oaklawn and then go and win the Kentucky Derby. Well, let's just hear Smarty Jones in the stretch run of the Arkansas Derby. Smarty
4: Jones leads it by three and a half and is pulling away. They're driving toward the wire. It is Smarty Jones by three. Barigo trying to make one late move. Pro Prado at the rail. Smarty Jones leading by two. It is Smarty Jones. One step more to Kentucky and one giant step to $5 million.
10: And now I remember that during the Kentucky Derby, Belmont and the Preakness. Oaklawn, as Eric had mentioned, was doing simulcasting. Mm-hmm. They had, you mentioned the Smarty Parties. Mm-hmm. They had huge Smarty Parties at Oaklawn. And you could watch the race. You could bet at their windows, their cages. It was just a lot of fun. It was a big party. My, my brother and I went to one of them. Anyway, this one for the Kentucky Derby... Um Smarty Jones was, wasn't originally the favorite. Now, right. by race time, he was, but he was going off at four to one, which is really good odds for a favorite. Mm-hmm. So, that's a really good pay. And Smarty Jones won. <laughs> and it caused a little <laughs> bit of a problem for Oakland, which I've never heard this story I before. Had, yeah. But you have heard it? I had heard about it. Yeah. But never from someone who actually knew what it was, who was sweating bullets right. because of it. Here's Eric Jackson.
11: What was remarkable about the Kentucky Derby is we ran out of money because everybody at Oaklawn bet on Smarty and of course he won the Kentucky Derby and paid I don't know 8 or 9 dollars. We didn't have enough money to pay everybody off. Oh now, no. We're ultimately mingled in with all the other bets in America, but it takes 24 to 48 hours to shift all that money around so that losing money gets shifted so you can pay off winning money. But all the winners were at Oak <laughs> yeah, So we ran out of money. I don't think that's ever happened at a racetrack before. Everybody was understanding. Come back tomorrow or you know, we'll mail it to you, anything you want us to do, but we're out of money. <laughs> There so yeah. wasn't a run on the cages. Huh? <laughs>
5: <laughs>
11: no, that was it. Was late in the day on a Saturday. You know, we couldn't even run down to the bank. So, yeah. one of the oddities in American racing is Smarty was so popular in Arkansas that Oaklawn ran out of money.
10: Uh, so things continued to develop, and fairly quickly, when you look at the, you know, the history, the long history of Oakland. So in 2009, voters approved the lottery. Uh, which helped because every other state around us had the lottery. Then in 2018, you know, gambling was made legal. Right. So Oakland is now in the unique position of having both a racetrack and a casino. So let's hear Eric Jackson one more time. We came up with the
11: term racino. It's, It's not a racetrack and it's not a casino. It's something in between. But we think we have found a way, or at least we know we have so far, we found a way that racing and gaming can each benefit the other. And right now, on the racing side, of course we're racing today, our purses are the highest in America. And this is at a track that was nearly out of business in the late 1990s. In fact, a lot of people had given us up for dead. And here we are now with the highest purses in America and and what we think is some of the very best racing in America and it's all here in Arkansas in Hot Springs
9: we'll do something again next week yeah I bet on it it'll be fun ah.
12: <laughs> from Little Rock I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas songs.
2: south of Cash in Arkansas.
12: Carolina Cotton was born Helen Hagstrom in 1925 in northeast Arkansas. She grew up there on the multi-generational family farm in Cache in Craighead County. The Hagstroms immigrated to the U.S. from Sweden. During the Depression, her father moved the family from the farm to San Francisco, California. She studied dance and sang. From a young age, Hagstrom appeared on local radio programs. Her impressive yodeling technique only emerged later. Beautiful and talented, she pursued a twin track to fame, both as a singer and in film. Her biggest hit was a pseudo-autobiographical song, Three Miles South of Cash in Arkansas, heard here. (laughs) Through the 1940s and 1950s, things came fast to Hagstrom. She appeared in a dizzying amount of B-movie westerns, early music videos, live radio, recordings for several different labels, early television programs, concerts, and personal appearances. A nod to her skills and looks, Hagstrom was nicknamed the Yodeling Blonde Bombshell. She also got a new stage name. At first, she was billed only as Carolina when she sang. A radio contest was held to pick her new last name of Cotton.
7: Where's that gal with the Red dress song Some folks
4: called her dance Sold my heart away from me Way down in Louisiana Take me back, Tulsa I'm too young to marry Take me back, Tulsa I'm too young to
12: marry Carolina Cotton could play several instruments filling in when her bandmates were drafted into World War II. In the mid-1940s, she got a break singing with the Spade Cooley Orchestra, one of the pioneering bands of Western swing music. She can be seen playing bass in a promo film for the band's version of Take Me Back to Tulsa. Spade Cooley was born in Oklahoma. He got to start playing fiddle in the big band of Jimmy Wakely, the cooning cowboy and movie star from Mineola in West Arkansas. Cooley took over the band when Wakely got a film contract. Cooley became a recording star and appeared in dozens of films as well, including as the stand-in for Roy Rogers, his Emmy-winning Spade Cooley television show started in 1948 and was eventually broadcast coast to coast His influential band launched the career of Tex Williams as well as that of Carolina Cott. a good
2: long west, way back on
12: Carolina Cotton's film career is said to begin with a chance encounter with Oklahoma songwriter and ukulele player, Johnny Marvin. Marvin was so taken with her, he offered her a part in a movie he was involved in called Sing, Neighbor Sing. From there, Cotton appeared in 1944's I'm from Arkansas, showing off her yodeling skills in two songs, including Yodel Mountain, heard here. Yeah, she
4: does everything wonderful, just like that.
12: The film also features the aforementioned Jimmy Wakely, who, like Cotton, actually was from Arkansas. Cotton signed with Columbia Pictures the next year, appearing in Outlaws of the Rockies, released that fall. Westerns were her specialty. She appeared in so many, she acquired another nickname, Queen of the Range. Less than a year after joining Spade Cooley's band, Carolina Cotton married the band's bass player, Deuce Spriggins. The two formed their own band and took several Cooley side men with them. Typical of her breakneck pace, Cotton and Spriggins recorded, had a radio program, and starred in a 1946 film called Cowboy Blues before they divorced.
2: Miss Carolina, you've been
12: down in Texas. Tell me what you found out.
2: Jonah, I've been down in Texas in the heart of
12: Carolina Cotton signed with King Records in 1946, sometimes paired with the band of Hank Penny, who was the label's top country act. Oh.
10: Yes, gather around now while we tell you. We're going three miles south of Cash down in Good Old Arkansas. Here's the girl to tell you all about it, Carolina coming here. Ain't got no electricity. That's just where I want to be. Three miles south of Cash in
6: Arkansas. In
12: 1950, Carolina Cotton signed with MGM Records. She performed and recorded with Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys. They recut her signature song, Three Miles South of Cash. The song was also recorded by Floyd and Lloyd, the Armstrong twins of DeWitt, Arkansas. Carolina Cotton's last films were in 1952, Blue Canadian Rockies and Apache Country, both with Gene Autry. She also took over a children's amusement park in Compton, California, calling it Carolina Cotton's Tiny Town. She made appearances there along with other Western stars. In 1956, Carolina Cotton married again and had two children with Bill Eights, another musician. They later divorced. In her later years, Cotton became a teacher, last teaching in Bakersfield, California. But she kept up public appearances at cowboy film festivals and the like. Hagstrom never stopped promoting the Carolina Cotton name. Even if she did, get it in a contest. arkansas Helen Hagstrom Better known as the yodeling blonde bombshell Carolina Cotton, died in 1997. Here's Carolina Cotton of Cache, Arkansas, with I Love to Yodel from her 1944 movie I'm from Arkansas. I love to yodel, I used to
4: theater sing,
2: all a song of romance in the spring. I can serenade my pony, but it won't be matrimony. He keeps my golden wedding. But the cow. Oh, I yodel lullabies as I gaze into their eyes. They seem to like that melody somehow. them and she is
4: he good to look like he's an actor at the movie show I love to yodel from
12: 1944 by carolina cotton of creekhead county it's another song of arkansas from Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansongs. Songs is a production of Experiment Station Studios.
0: Producer is Keith Merks. Arkansongs since 1998. This is KUAF 91.3 FM in Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Siloam Springs, and Clarksville. You've been listening to Ozarks at Large. Contributors today included Jacqueline and Anna Pope, Kyle Kellums and KUAF news intern Jack Travis. Randy Dixon is Director of News Archives and Media at the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History in Fayetteville. I'm Daniel Carruth. We'll be back again tomorrow with an all-new episode of Ozarks at Large. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great day.